On this episode of AvTalk, the industry recovery expands as we pass 100,000 commercial flights for the first time in over a year. The operator of the Transair flight that crashed in Hawaii is grounded by the FAA, and British Airways is quickly fixing its uncovered holes. Hello and welcome to episode 121 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Hi, Ian. How are you? I'm doing well, Jason. How are you, sir? I'm fine. It's a slow week. It is a slow week and and this will certainly be, I guess, the slow show or fast show, I guess, is the way to look at it. The Um, slow, quick, but boring show. Well, let's not call it boring before we even get going. I mean, we're a mere 30 seconds in to this. It'll probably be a little We'll reevaluate at the end. There you go. Okay. So let's get into it then, shall we? Good news from the start. Last Friday, we tracked over 100,000 commercial flights for the first time since the 13th of March last year. Hooray! So I'm calling that one a win. So it took the better part of 18 months, but we made it to a purely arbitrary milestone, but one that I think is worth celebrating. Certainly still down from 2019 year on year, but I guess years on year. But things are looking up, especially the recovery is starting to spread out a little bit, which I think is the more important point to be made because we've seen the domestic US market just kind of rocket out of the gate since late April, early May as vaccine levels took hold and people started traveling again. But now things are starting to kind of move in other places. So the breakdown, the the top three continents as far as traffic goes, North America was the top at 37%. Asia 31%, and then Europe down at 21%, and then South America, Africa, and Australia accounting for between 2 and 4% apiece. So really kind of where things are recovering is the major markets and where we would expect to see things. But Europe certainly gaining ground, though it's been very stutter-steppish lately, especially in Asia where Chinese domestic traffic has, has actually fallen, even though it's up dramatically from last year. Yeah, especially here in the U.S., like you said, Ian, things are hanging on by a thread in, I guess, a positive light. United had its earnings call today, and they actually said, United CFO actually said that they expect 2022 capacity to be higher than 2019. So that's certainly something to keep an eye on. I mean, I I think it's certainly something worth noting, given the fact that six months ago, seven months ago, we were talking about... 2023, 2024 was kind of the the horizon that I think IATA had fixed itself on. And so seeing the good news of no, it'll be 2022, albeit this is, you know, purely a North American major airline, but it was nice to hear that they were looking forward to having much more capacity on international routes. And that's what they were seeing. So hopefully that translates into not just North American airline benefits, but worldwide. Yeah, we'll see. They went on to say that they believe next year could have the, uh, or United believes it could have the highest pent-up demand for transatlantic travel ever. 
which I guess if you qualify it as pent-up demand, when would there have ever been such high pent-up demand for transatlantic travel? So of course that's going to be a true statement. But next year is has the potential to be either extremely disappointing or extremely exciting. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, there's the there's the episode title right there. Yeah, I don't think we'll stay the status quo because countries are, are certainly still figuring out where they want to go, how they want to open up, how they want to let people in if they do open up. And there's just too much uncertainty right now for a critical mass of people to want to travel. I know I do not want to put up with it, especially with regulations changing seemingly on an hourly basis. But next year, I would hope that countries have their crap figured out and I can make some actual firm plans to go places. Firm plans, I think, is the real key phrase there. Yeah, everything I have planned right now is nothing more than hypothetical. Right, exactly. And I feel like even though I've got travel booked, I've got things ready to go, we're still dealing with the, I need to be okay if it's canceled. You know, I, right. I, I need to be prepared already that if it's canceled, that that's not going to be a surprise. I think that's that's certainly, yeah, the firm plans I think is important. An update on the Transair 810 ditching. The Federal Aviation Administration, or late last week, released a statement about their suspension of Rhodes Aviation, which was the operator of the Transair 737. And the FAA has suspended the Rhodes Aviation from flying or conducting maintenance inspections. This is actually not related. I mean, it's very much related. I'm sure it's accelerated. Yeah. But well, no, because that's the interesting thing. It precedes the crash at the beginning of July. So in the fall of 2020, the FAA began an investigation into Rhodes Aviation's maintenance practices. And that investigation came to a head on the 13th of June when the FAA notified Rhodes that it had identified deficiencies as part of the investigation and it was going to remove Rhodes' ability to conduct maintenance inspections. And if the airline can't inspect its aircraft, it can't fly those aircraft. So they had a month to respond and say, hey, wait, 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 wait. The investigation, you you got it all wrong. Here's either what we're going to do to fix it or what we think is wrong with what you've said. Well, in two weeks after the FAA notified Rhodes that they were going to prevent them from operating, the Rhodes operated 737 crashed into the bay following what we believe at this point to be at least one engine failure, possibly two engine failures. And so two weeks after that, now effective, they can no longer conduct maintenance inspections. They are grounded. They had two aircraft. One of them is currently sitting in pieces at the bottom of the ocean near Hawaii, and the other is now just plain grounded. So an interesting twist in an already interesting investigation. Yeah, the rest of the investigation that the NTSB is doing now with, as we mentioned, a whole host of people is going to be pretty interesting. They've already determined several factors, such as the fuel was not contaminated, which I know was something people jumped to right away with a double engine failure. We think possibly the fuel was contaminated. That wasn't the case. 
And apparently this aircraft, this particular aircraft had been, had experienced engine failures on departure a number of times in the recent past. So this isn't exactly new behavior for this aircraft or this airline. So there was definitely something systemic at that airline. And unfortunately, the grounding order came just a wee bit too late. Yeah. An engine failure on departure in 2018 on one of the engines that was relatively low time and low cycles, 23,657 total hours, 35,753 total cycles. In 2019, a different engine that had 71,706 total hours and 67,194 total cycles failed as the crew was taking off from Honolulu. And so that, that, you know, kind of a, a pattern within that particular aircraft. We don't know what engines, if they were any, either of the same engines from the 2018 or 2019 incidents, that information has not been released yet. But Certainly, investigators are looking into to which engine were involved, and if it has you know bears any of the similarities beyond just you know the the engine failures. So definitely yeah. something the NTSB is looking at, and as Jason mentioned, they have quite the team there to look at all of these things. Yeah, unfortunately, they have not been able to recover the flight data and cockpit voice recorders as they are at the bottom of the bay, and the the site is too deep for divers to go down and get, so they're going to have to figure out some sort of submersible robotic vehicle to go pluck those out of the aircraft, which is probably going to take a while. Yes, but they have at least identified the location of the aircraft, like we talked about last week. So that's, I mean, kind of step one, and the biggest step is the finding the thing, so that's good. More follow-up. Let's talk about covering up unwanted holes, Jason. Dangerous topic, but okay, continue. Uh, <laughs> so we talked in depth last week about the British Airways 787 that had an unfortunate incident wherein maintenance was being performed and they cycled the gear and a series of failures to follow proper procedures led to the nose landing gear retracting during a maintenance event. And I believe when we first talked about this, Jason, you said nose go boop was the technical term. Uh, I have not yet been able to find that in either the FAA Airworthiness Directive nor the UK AIB report. Yeah, However, keep, keep I, I think it might be in the glossary. We briefly mentioned, I think last week, the fact that there was an airworthiness directive following the 2019 event where a similar situation occurred. And the FAA said, hey, you should put a cover on this hole. And airlines had 36 months to cover up the borehole that is directly next to the nose landing gear lock pin hole. And so there's a, a little piece of plastic that airlines are supposed to install. BA had not yet gotten around to doing this. And they have now said, we're going to accelerate the installation of the apex pin bore cover. Hey, that's great. Again, Don't want that happening again. A little late, but better late than never, I guess. Yeah. So that is where they are with that. The investigation into the right pin in the wrong hole continues, and I'm sure we'll be back with more in a future date. Hopefully not reporting on another incident like this. 
I am now happy to report that Jason and I will be bidding for the all Italian naming rights. Jason doesn't know this, but he's agreed to it. Oh, okay. So congratulations on that. So the new Italian airline, the new company that is, I guess, scheduled to be taking over what used to be all Italia is coming online. And they're called ITA, which stands for Italia Transporto Aero or Italy Air Transport. Very creative naming, but we'll go with it. No one has any idea what the logo or branding for that particular airline is going to be, but there's going to be a public auction for the Alitalia branding, which ITA says that it will compete for. In my mind, having experienced the wonders of Italian bureaucracy a few times, I'm going to go out on a limb and say the new airline will probably end up being called Alitalia. I wonder how much they'll end up paying for the naming rights of their own airline. It's definitely strange. So what if somebody outbids them? Can somebody else start up Alitalia 2.0 while ITA has to come up with a new, more creative name? But do you have to start an airline? I guess that's my question. I mean, you could just own the Alitalia branding. It'll be like the people that own the Pan Am branding. I mean, Mm. you can sell bags and coats and hats and things like that, but you don't have to have an airline. No, I guess it is a valuable brand name. People know it. People, I guess, generally like the brand. I'm not quite sure. I'm indifferent, but I can't imagine it will end up in the hands of anyone other than the airline that is supposed to, guess, become Alitalia. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is it's a very interesting way for Italy to assist Alitalia, but not run afoul of the European Union's competition rules. So is what this all seems to me to be. Because of the historic support for Alitalia and the European Commission saying that their support for Alitalia has basically violated competition rules, they've found some more creative ways to do the same thing, but not get in trouble for breaking those rules, is what I guess all of the reading between the lines ends up being. So Alitalia, but not Alitalia, but Alitalia once more. Okay. That's what I said. Okay. I don't understand it, but I don't think I need to. I mean, at this point, you don't, I don't think. But when you do, we'll get there. So keep your checkbook handy, and we'll bid on it when the time comes. We are also going to bid for the Malaysia Airlines A380s. Oh, so we're going to have a fleet of six A380s branded in Alitalia livery? That's exactly what we're doing. That is exactly what we're doing. Thank you. Thank you for putting two and two together. I appreciate that. How much do these A380s cost? They don't cost anything. Oh. This is a name your price, and if they like it, they will take it. So Malaysia Airlines, or the parent company of Malaysia Airlines, has put out a request for proposals for the purchase of their six A380s. They are between eight and nine years old, all of them, floating right around MSN 100. So if that's what you're interested in, you could do well with an airline flying six A380s and Alitalia branding, I think. Sure. 
in reality, no airline, no leasing company is buying these. They'll be bought by a, a scrapper to unfortunately be flown to some airport where they will never leave unless they leave in the form of beer cans. I would assume that they'll try and get some money for it for five of them and then one of them, hey, why not? Let's turn it into a museum piece or something like that. Sounds like a good idea to me. Yeah, sure. Let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and we'll run through not things that are ending, but things that are about to begin. So stay with us. We will be right back. Welcome back. Airbus is celebrating its first A350 delivery from its China delivery center. That is registration B323H and MSN452 goes to China Eastern. So that's a neat thing. And they've got a little fancy decal on the side of the aircraft to let you know that that is the first A350 from China. Who knows how important this particular fact is, besides the fact that it goes to the competition or lack thereof these days between Airbus and Boeing, where Airbus continues to expand its presence in places that used to be pretty much Boeing's prerogative to lose. And well, they seem to have lost. Yes. Now, the A350 completion center in Tianjin, China, joins Airbus's already existing and longstanding A320, not final assembly line, but finishing center, I guess you would say. Or is the 320 an assembly line? I don't think it is. Somebody should check that. But anyway, what actually happens here with the A350s is that the aircraft is assembled in, in Europe. It's flown out to China And then from there, it is painted, the interior is fitted, they do test flights, and then the Chinese airlines actually take acceptance and delivery of the aircraft right there in Tianjin, so they don't have to go all the way out to Toulouse, really, I guess, to do that. And as I mentioned, the A320 family, they've already been doing that for a long time. I don't know exactly how long, but it's it's not a new thing, but it's recently expanded as of this week to the A350 family. Yeah. So the Tianjin facility is for the A320s. It is a final assembly line. Ah, I thought so. That is six. I think the rate is six per month for the A320 family. So that's 319, not really. 320 Neo and 321 Neo are the big ones there. So that's what that is. And then Jason just explained what the A350 situation is because they are different. So there you go on that front. So the first A350 there. And so what's interesting to me is it takes a while for, because the A350 was transferred from Toulouse to Tianjin of months ago, which is interesting to me. That maybe it's because it was the first one that it took longer. So I guess it'll be interesting to see how long, once they get into a rhythm, how long it takes for to go from you know final assembly and transfer to delivery. Yeah, it's a lot of work. Uh, the entire interior has to be installed, and that's everything from the side walls, the carpet, the seat rails, the seats themselves, lavatories, galleys. It's a lot of work to get exactly right. It's similar to how Airbus would manufacture the A380s in France and then fly them up to Hamburg in Germany to actually have the interior fitted. And and sometimes those A380s for Emirates and Etihad, they were there for months on end before they were flown back down to France 
for the actual delivery of that aircraft. So it, it, it's not a quick process. Yeah, I mean, it got to the point where Emirates just stopped bothering with the Toulouse delivery. They just st- started taking them from Hamburg. They were like, we'll just take the aircraft. Cut out the middleman. We don't need the fancy delivery center. Super Airjet is possibly coming online soon. Who? I know. So this has been a weird semi-secretive thing. So it's supposed to be an Indonesian low-cost carrier. Oh, because we need another one of those. I know. So they're looking at the initial routes are going to be 10 cities using Jakarta as the kind of a, a hub. And there's Lion Air adjacentness because I guess it's the son of the Lion Air founder. So the whole thing has been very, very interesting because it kind of sprung up out of nowhere. There were no announcements or anything like that that, you know, hey, we're going to start an airline, no drumming up PR or anything like that, how it's traditionally done. All of a sudden, there were planes painted in this livery and everyone went, what? Uh Yeah. And Wikipedia, not, you know, the best source in the world, but it actually says the parent company of Super Airjet is Lion Air Group. Why does Lion Air feel the need to have yet another subsidiary? They already have Lion Air and Batik Air, Melinda Air, and Thai Lion Air, and Wings Air, and all sorts of other nonsense. Why not another? And call it Super Air Jet. I mean, better than Super Land Jet? I mean, I don't know. Okay. Hey, <laughs> speaking of Super Jets, oh. there have been – wait, am I reading this right? Uh, you might want to double check that. Usually when we talk about the super jet, it's how about they're grounded and airlines operating them have ceased to exist. So wait, hold on a second. For someone's, four airlines ordered super jets. That's right. Explain this to me. Okay. How do I pronounce the name of this air show so I don't get it wrong? I always call it Max. Yeah, Max. At, at Max, which is Russia's big aerospace show every year, much like the Farnborough Air Show or Paris Air Show, actual news out of there that 58 Superjet 100s, which we just called the Superjet, have been ordered by four different Russian airlines. We have, who do we have here? Azimuth Air, and then there is Aurora, and Red Wings, and Rosaya, which is a subsidiary of Aeroflot. And I believe all of these airlines today already operate the Superjet, I think. So these are add-on orders to existing fleets, except for Aurora. I'm not sure if Aurora operates the Superjet. An odd move, because the Superjet has not been particularly successful. It's the only Western airline that operated it was Interjet, which no longer exists because of a host of reasons. But it had largely grounded its Superjet fleet because it just couldn't get parts support for the aircraft, and they had to cannibalize many of the aircraft to keep what was left in the fleet operating. So this is very interesting to me that anyone would be ordering the Superjet at this stage and not just waiting for one of the newer generation Russian aircraft to be certified. Yeah, I mean, so interesting. Aurora doesn't have any Superjet in its fleet. So that's the most interesting one to me. Because you think, you know, if you already operate them, okay, what's adding a few more and why not? But Aurora doesn't, and that's interesting. And then the other thing about all of this that interests me is that Azimuth Airlines ordered six A22300s today. Huh. 
Well, those seem contradictory. (laughs) Exactly. Not only are they adding super jets, but they're adding A220s. And all of this comes ahead of ordering any of the kind of Russian new aircraft that are coming on. And yes, the MC-21 is not kind of apples to apples as far as the super jets concerned, certainly. But interesting that they would put this order in and for that number, why 50? The 58 thing is all very interesting to me. And, and I'm sure it makes sense to someone. It's just not me. Yeah. And as far as I can tell, these are new production aircraft, not taking leases of X interjet aircraft, uh, of which I can tell there are maybe 22 or more out there grounded in various parts of Mexico. I'm guessing, I I don't know what happens to those. I I don't think they're going to any of these Russian airlines. So maybe they get cannibalized for taking apart. I I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Taking apart and shipped Reassembled out in in Russia. I don't know, but there's not a majority, but a good chunk of the produced super jets in the world are sitting in Mexico idle. So uh, I don't know. Very strange situation. Yeah, the whole thing's very interesting. And obviously, we'll, we'll see what happens tomorrow and what else gets ordered. Maybe some C919s. Who knows? Ooh. Yeah. So this is tangentially related to anything that we want to talk about as far as the bread and butter of this podcast, which is commercial aviation. But it brings up a good idea, I think. And so we're going to talk about it anyway, because I want to hear what you all think and how crazy this absolutely is. We're already buying the Alitalia brand. We've already committed to purchasing 6A380s. Why not bring back the flying boats between you know various cities? Because Tradewinds is about to operate caravans between Boston and New York, which has always been kicked around. It's always seemed like a good idea to me, and I'm, I've always been surprised someone's not doing it on a regular basis. Though now that I see that the tickets are $400 each way, I kind of get why no one's doing this on a regular basis. Yeah, no thanks. Um, so seaplane operations are nothing new in Manhattan. There's a large operation off of East 23rd Street on the East River in Manhattan, these typically the Cessna seaplanes, they operate between Manhattan and places where rich people go, such as the Hamptons or to Martha's Vineyard or to Cape Cod or somewhere along those lines. And they're basically rich people shuttle planes out to places rich people go for the weekend. So they operate Thursday, Friday eastbound and Sunday, Monday westbound for the most part. And there's always been Recently, in the last couple of years, I think Cape Air had floated the idea of and was going to start operating Manhattan to Boston, but then 2020 happened and we hit reset. And out of nowhere, Tradewinds, which is another one of these airlines operating Cessna seaplanes out of the East River, just suddenly said, okay, we're going to do it. And we're going to charge $400 each way to fly between Manhattan and Boston, which is way more expensive than I would ever would pay. But they also have some interesting discounts like commuter ticket books. So you can buy 20 tickets up front and get a discount and give those to other people, I guess, which is interesting. But this is very much targeted at the business person who I guess does not have their own helicopter but needs to get between Boston and Manhattan and cannot spare a moment. I'm sure that they've done the math and they think that there are enough of those people these days. I mean, two years ago, I said, sure, okay, that makes sense. These days, I don't know. I mean, are, yeah. are there that many people that they're going to spring for a $800 round trip? Maybe. 
I'll probably stick to Amtrak and pay, you know, $52 each way. There you go. So last bit of new news is is that Korean Air, at the behest of the, the South Korean government, Korean Air, has been tasked with deciding or investigating whether or not the Virgin Orbit model is a good one. That is to say, using 747s to launch rockets. So ostensibly, you attach a large rocket to the wing of a 747, fly it up to 35, 40,000 feet, rocket drops off, rocket engages, rocket goes into space. So the Korean government, or South Korean government has said, hey, is this a good idea? And Korean Air is going to figure it out. I say all this to say, I really hope that they this isn't just a, a paper study and that they do this thing. Because I would love to see you know more seven four sevens flying around with rockets attached to their wings. And did they task Korean Air on figuring out if this is something that is feasible? Because I don't feel like Korean Air is. I don't feel like any commercial passenger airline should be figuring that out. I don't think they're going to use a passenger seven four. Like I said, I don't think they're going to be using a seven four seven with passengers on it. I don't think it's going to be like Seoul to Los Angeles. Oh, and by the way, we're going to circle a couple <laughs> if times you look over up the, 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 the uh, Windsor. We'll see a rocket go vroom. <laughs> but I, I mean, did they test the airline to do the study to figure out if this is something it can do with its seven four sevens? It's no longer using. Yeah, I, I no. Yes. Yes. It's a you have seven four sevens. We would like to use a few of them to test this out. Let's see if it's feasible. And you have the engineering prowess in order to do this. Uh, so please help us understand whether or not this is something that is both possible uh, and wise. We know it's possible. Is it wise? Is it something that we should be doing? Okay. Uh, well, the 747 is a versatile aircraft. I'm sure they could figure something out. I mean, Virgin is already doing it. And the U.S. military strapped a giant laser to the nose of what to blow up uh, missiles. So, yeah, anything is possible with that. Aircraft. Well, I mean, and and what is now? What is it now? Orbital ATK, which before was was it Raytheon? I forget which defense contractor was, but the L ten eleven that has the mm-hmm. the yep. Pegasus rocket. So, I mean, this is nothing new. It's just, I guess, bigger and possibly better. It, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, so nothing in the near term, but something to keep an eye on in, in case you see a you know Korean airplane flying around with a, a rocket attached to it in the near future, or in the medium future. A programming note, next week, we are going to talk with Alan Head, who is the editor of eVTOL magazine. And so we are going to devote the entire episode, will be our conversation with Alan. And we are going to learn, Jason and I, and hopefully all of you fine people who are listening, are going to learn about eVTOLs, so electronic, vertical, takeoff, and landing. So what are those aircraft? Who's developing them? Why are they being developed? Uh, What are some of the benefits or promised benefits of these aircraft? And what is happening in this relatively recent and extremely fast growing space. United has put in orders for eVTOL aircraft. Other airlines are also putting in orders um, or conditional orders, I guess we should say. So what are these things? What do they do? What are they supposed to do? And how big of a chunk of the, the aerospace industry is this going to be in the near future? So that will be next week's episode. 
If you have any specific questions or general questions about eVTOLs, by all means, please email us at podcast at fr24.com and we will be happy to work those in. Uh, So I'm really excited about this conversation. I I think it's going to be a good one because it's a space that I do not know much about. So I'm really excited to learn, to see what's out there and to see how much attention we should be paying to this particular niche of the industry. So that will be next week's episode of AvTalk. This week's episode of AvTalk has been episode 121. And I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rubinowitz. Thanks for listening.